slightly altered language in which the students answer questions about their own personalities. And McKnight is not the only one who's administered this exam. It's been field tested by other professionals as well. He says that the results are remarkably consistent. Everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. Isn't that interesting? Um, it says, uh, he, McKnight says, the test results also suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. Um, Jatani writes, McKnight's personality questionnaire confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said three centuries ago, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. And uh, today, I, I would like to, you to, to understand that Jesus is not like us. Okay? He is significantly different from us in very, very powerful and amazing ways. And because I think what is true, if we all took this test, I bet it's true of us too. Jesus needs to become more glorious in our eyes. And that is one of the key purposes of the story we want to look at today in Matthew 17. That you and I, we would we would, would esteem Jesus more highly than we do. He is not like us. He is far, far above us. And in an amazing way, we get to see that today. So let's pray, and uh, we'll look in, in our Bibles at Matthew 17. God, we ask for kindness now from you by your spirit and your word that we might see Jesus. Really see him for who he is, and we might respond rightly. I, I think if we see, we will respond. And so, may your spirit help us see. Um, give us ears to hear your word now by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. All right, Matthew 17, starting in the very first verse. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, the reference here to six days, it can have all kinds of symbolic meaning. It might have something to do with the six days of creation, or it might have something to do with six days that Moses spent up on top of a mountain um, with the Lord. But what's most clear is that hey, this is happening just after what just happened. Okay? So chapter 17 follows chapter 16 that Mark and George taught you by about six days, especially the back end of chapter 6 that you heard about last week. And in that section, we find that Jesus has resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. Verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time, okay, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, that's what's going to happen here happens six days after Jesus has this tremendous focus on the end of his life and what's to follow. 
Um, these three disciples go with him. And it's an inner circle of the 12 that are uh, from time to time singled out in, for experiences, encounters, and teachings like this. So it may be that Jesus has handpicked them uh, to go and experience this thing. That's likely the case. But this story is also recorded in Luke and in Mark. And Luke tells us an interesting insight. He says, uh, they went up on this mountain to pray. So I have a theory. Okay, Jesus is sitting around with the 12, and he says, hey, anybody want to go up on top of the mountain with me? And the guys look up, and they say, so uh, why, why are we going to go up on the mountain? And he says, we're going to go up to pray. And nine of them say, I'm good. Okay. I, I think it's proven statistically that when you call a prayer gathering, three out of four Christians say, I'm good. Okay. So providentially, guess what's happening tonight in this room at 6 o'clock? We are gathering for prayer here on the mountaintop with Jesus. Will you come? Okay. You don't want to miss what happens when these guys go off with Jesus to pray. It's, it is absolutely unbelievable uh, what happens here. Luke, if you read his account, he tells us that those who accompanied Jesus, these three that went with him atop the mountain to pray, they fell asleep and they woke up to an absolutely stunning encounter. Um, it says in verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This happens, don't miss that this happens for these disciples. Okay. Matthew says, before them. Um, Jesus wanted to show these three we get to eavesdrop so that we can see and learn something about Jesus that would enlarge their worship and obedience of him. That's what's supposed to happen after church today. You are supposed to love and revere and worship and hear and obey Jesus more because of this encounter. Um, well, these three, they wake up and they find Jesus with his face shining like the sun, his clothes as white as light. Luke, in, the, in his telling of this account, he says the clothes were as bright as a flash of lightning. Mark says, for those of you who are more domestically inclined, they were whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. That includes your mama, okay? These are, this is, they, they can't, it's inexpressibly bright. They're grasping for words to describe this transfiguration that they are, they are witnessing. Jesus is transfigured. We get the, the word metamorphosis from this language, like a butterfly, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Um, he morphed. Jesus is morphing before their eyes. What is this about? What's going on? Um, 
Dale Bruner summarizes it well. He says, here, for the only time in his earthly career, Jesus' dignity is made gloriously, even spectacularly clear to the church. Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus shine and glow like this. But here, once in his life, Jesus is showered with light and in a moment with God's voice. And thus what Jesus is in God's thinking is made unforgettably clear. What Jesus was within is made visible without. To show Jesus inside out, he says, as it were, seems to be a major reason for the transfiguration story to be told at all. The theological function of the transfiguration, in short, is to emphasize the divine dimension of the inauspicious history of Jesus. He is not like us. We don't do this. Okay? Because, as we're going to see, he's the son of God. He is God amongst us. This is a glimpse of the divine nature of Jesus. It's a sneak peek of the way his glory will be manifest in the future. See, what Peter declared back in chapter 16, you remember? Jesus is saying, so who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. What Peter declared then is put on display now. It's like Matthew saying, behold, the Son of God. A glory like the sun Brighter than light, than lightning, yes, even than bleach. <laughs> That's how stunning this display is. And it comes just six days after Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Um, he must be killed. And he will raise on the third day. It is the great completing contrast with Jesus' explicit statements about his suffering and death. It's like in this display, he's reassuring his disciples, I really will be raised. Okay? It really will be glorious. Some have called this a pre-resurrection experience. The glory of chapter 17 balances, it completes the suffering predictions of chapter 16. Suffering, then glory. This is the way of Christ, and it's the way of Christians who follow Christ. Okay? Suffering, then glory. As he suffered, so shall we. You remember just last week or so in, in this passage in chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. His suffering we will share. But also his glory we will share. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're going to share in his glory in some way in the future. So there's a great hope here. Um, 
for Christ himself as he faces the cross, as well as for those of us who follow him and share in his sufferings. In hardship, the hope of glory is sure for us. It's sure. So, it's, it's not just this amazing, glorious, indescribable transfiguration that is witnessed by the three disciples. There's this kind of history channel kind of conversation that's going on there with two saints from a long, long time ago. Moses and Elijah are there. Okay? Verse 3, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. I have no idea how they knew. Name tags would be my guess. Okay? <laughs> Moses and Elijah are on the mountain with this glorious Christ in conversation. And the symbolism is rich. Alan Ross summarizes it well. He says, in the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear and talk with the Lord. Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. Moses represents those who have died in the Lord and Elijah those who have not. Elijah did not die. Remember, he was taken up to be with the Lord. Moses wrote the law which anticipated the sacrificial atonement of the Messiah. Elijah was to come to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Lord. Moses went up Mount Sinai, and because he was with the Lord of glory there, his faith shone when he came back down. Elijah did not die, but was taken up in glory in the whirlwind and the chariot of fire. So rich, rich symbolism in these two ancient saints there with Jesus. On the one hand, it's for the disciples, but um, Ross points out it's for Jesus too. He says, we read in the New Testament that it was because of the glory that was set before him that Jesus was was able to endure the cross. The revelation of Christ's glory in this chapter was a clear confirmation to the disciples of the truth of Peter's confession of faith, but it would also be a great encouragement for Christ himself as he faced the agony that would occur occur on another mountain called Golgotha. Now at this point, all this is unfolding. Peter evidently simply cannot restrain himself anymore. And so Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents Three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, we learn from Mark that Peter was speaking out of fear. Evidently, he's one of those people who, when they are afraid, they just get chatty. And Peter, evidently, is one of those people. Um, We learn from both Mark and Luke, they say that Peter did not know what he was saying. Um... But really, who, who could blame him? Okay. You're where Peter is. You're going to respond lucidly to, to this situation? Um, Dale Bruner points out what he's doing here with this proposal of the, brute, of the booths. Um, likely, this is a reference to the festival of booths in the Old Testament. And... Um, They may represent a way to prolong the mountaintop experience, okay? Let's set up camp here, give you guys some shelter. Um, I don't want to go down from this mountaintop. Um, 
But it may also be a darker way of for Jesus not to have to face the cross and for the disciples not to have to face the cross that Jesus just talked about. Peter had been taken to task for proposing this in chapter 16. Bruner says, Peter makes this suggestion of Booth in order, this time more subtly than last time, to keep Jesus from the cross. Peter thinks that the world can now come up to this new Zion, this new mountain of God, as a better way of salvation. And what Peter does here is he tries to make a future, a present. Neither Jesus nor the disciples need go down to a cross then. He says Peter is inveterately opposed to Jesus' theology of the cross. And since Peter is the prototype disciple, we learn that we too resist the cross. Not only for ourselves, we all resist suffering. But more dangerously, we resist a cross for Christ and his cause. We think failure is the worst thing that can happen to a Christian enterprise. And we resist failure, he says, as we resist the devil. Peter wants following Jesus to be all glory No suffering, don't we all? But at this proposal, God must interrupt. And that's actually what happens in the next verse. Peter's still speaking. He's still chattering on about, I don't know, maybe he's, I don't know, who knows what. He's designing the tents, you know, whatever. He's still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Literally, God, the voice of God, has to interrupt Peter to get him to shut up. Um, The cloud in the Old Testament, is sometimes a symbol of God's presence out of which he speaks and leads his people. Um, God now speaks from the cloud words he has spoken to Jesus once before. If we went all the way back to early in our study of Matthew, chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Does that sound really familiar? Each time that God speaks in this way, he's clarifying unmistakably who Jesus is. It's my son, God says. But this time there are added words in verse 5. Listen to him. See, when we get who Jesus really is, that he's not like us, that rather he's the unique, the one and only very son of God, we should listen to him. When we get who Jesus really is, we should listen to him. The principle is that right living flows out of a right understanding of who Jesus is. If you get who Jesus is, you'll get life following him. And this voice, along with everything else that's going on, 
overwhelms the disciples. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, hearing this voice, seeing these great and ancient saints, observing Jesus transformed, they are understandably terrified. Okay? Jesus, however, now is back in his abnormal state. See, this little glimpse, this little peak of Jesus' glory is likely more normative than is his veiling of his glory in the incarnation. It is, it is the glory he possessed and he will possess that is veiled by his humanity in the incarnation. Um, it's his abnormal state. And Jesus calms their fears with these words, rise, have no fear. And, and this is one of the effects of the incarnation of God becoming a man. God can draw near to us now without abject terror on our parts. God is drawing near to us. Philip Yancey puts it this way. He tells a fascinating account. He says, uh, I learned about incarnation when I kept a saltwater aquarium. Management of a marine aquarium, I discovered, is no easy task. I had to run a portable chemical laboratory to monitor the nitrate levels and the ammonia content. I pumped in vitamins and antibiotics and sulfur drugs and enough enzymes to make a rock grow. I filtered the water through glass fibers and charcoal and exposed it to ultraviolet light. You would think, in view of all the energy expended on their behalf, that my fish would at least be grateful. He says, not so. Every time my shadow loomed above the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. They showed me one emotion only, fear. Although I opened the lid and dropped in food on a regular schedule three times a day, they responded to each visit as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. I could not convince them of my true concern. He says, to my fish... I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing they viewed as destruction. To change their perceptions, he says, I began to see would require a form of incarnation. I would have to become a fish and speak to them in a language they could understand. He says, a human being becoming a fish is nothing compared to God becoming a man. And yet, according to the Gospels, that is what happened. The God who created matter took shape within it. Was an, uh, as an artist might become a spot on a painting or a playwright, a character within his own play. God wrote a story only using real characters on the pages of real history. The Word became flesh. They were terrified, as one writer put it, by the naked voice of God, but the glory-cloaked incarnate God comforted them. Rise, have no fear.
Jesus said. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only, it says. That's the point. That's the point. It all points to Jesus. The light, Moses and Elijah, the voice, everything points to Jesus. That's why when Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, the voice says, listen to him, not listen to them. It's all about Jesus. He alone and indeed is the beloved Son with whom God the Father is well pleased. We really should listen to him, don't you think? Wouldn't that be like a really good idea to listen to this Jesus? Are you? Are you listening to Jesus? Let me break that into two parts. Just what it says, listening. You know, it it takes a good deal of time to listen well. Are you setting aside protecting time to listen to Jesus? It's interesting, Bruner's assessment of Peter, he says, first, we must credit Peter with trying to say the right thing. But once more, instead of waiting to follow Jesus' word, Peter is too eager to speak. Peter has not learned that leadership in the church is not, first of all, a matter of doing things for Jesus. It is, first of all, letting Jesus speak and then doing the things he says we are to do. Church leaders, he says, must be especially suspicious of their own ideas. In neither chapter, he says, is Peter's problem wanting to do something bad. In both, the problem is Peter's wanting to do something good. In each case, it's something good for Jesus. But our notions of good, he writes, are often way off. Are you letting Jesus speak to you? Or are you too busy to listen? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christians... I don't know why people are picking on pastors, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others, that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. He says, many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking where they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life, Bonhoeffer says. And in the end, there is nothing left but spiritual chatter. Nothing left but spiritual chatter. Are you listening to Jesus? Does that mark your life? Does it mark your day, your week? This whole matter of listening to Jesus, you know, uh, time matters. Are you setting aside time 
to hear from Jesus about the condition of your life before him? Can you show me that time in your calendar? If you can't, then have you really set aside time to hear from Jesus? It's hard. I get that. Uh, I think sometimes I'm as ADD as anyone. Um, you're busy. I know. It's hard to be still and quiet. I understand that. Listen to this comment. Okay, this is made 150 years ago by a fellow named Frederick Faber. And he says, there's hardly ever a complete silence in our soul. God, he says, is whispering to us well nigh incessantly. Whenever the sounds of the world die out in the soul or sink low, then we hear these whisperings of God. He is always whispering to us, only we do not always hear because of the noise, hurry, and distraction which life causes as it rushes on. He wrote that 150 years ago. What would he say now if he thought 150 years ago when it was you know, horses and buggies and mail carriers about the busyness of our lives. Time matters if you want to hear from Jesus, if you want to listen to Jesus. Place matters. It's not essential, but it matters. An undistracted, unconnected place unconnected place, somewhere where you will not get a signal, is what I mean. See, the unconstrained, unrestrained use of cell phones is just as disruptive to those times of communion with Jesus as it is to your regular, in-the-flesh personal relationships. Okay? Some of you need to think about what I just said for a moment. An undistracted, unconnected place. Are you regularly finding yourself in a time and place set aside to listen to God? Using the word, using the word to hear from him about the condition of your life before him and what he wants you to do about it. Can you show me that time and place on your calendar? He is not like us. He is the one and only beloved Son of God whose glory is brighter than a flash of lightning. You know, you really should listen to Him, don't you think? Listening is the first part. But the second part is the main point. The principal focus of the voice's command to listen is to obey. To listen is to obey. Uh, here's Proverbs chapter 8. It's interesting. It says, uh, Now, O sons, listen to me. Wisdom is speaking here. The voice of God is wisdom. Listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Um, listening implies keeping. Keeping is enabled by listening. 
See, when the voice speaks from the cloud and calls us to listen to Jesus, it's calling us to obey Jesus. Okay? Fascinating account is told by Claire de Graff. He says, I've imagined a scene in my head. I'm playing baseball with Jesus. Stands are full of fans, but out there on the field, it's just him and me. I'm the pitcher. Jesus is the catcher. Behind home plate, he settles into his crouch, ready to play. I look for his signals. Simple commands. What pitch will he want me to throw? I wait in anticipation, but also with one eye on the crowd. What will they think of me? He signals a fastball. I think for a moment and shake my head. No, Jesus, not a fastball. Next, he signals a slider. This time I look toward my teammates in the dugout for guidance. Then I glance up at the fans. No, no, I'm not comfortable with that one either, Jesus. He gives me yet a third signal. No, no, not that one. Thank you. Then I imagine Jesus silently and slowly withdrawing his signaling hand back into his mitt, and there's a deep disappointment in his eyes, and he's decided to let me throw whatever I want. So I do. And then he says, is there a signal God's been trying to give you, even as you read this sentence, that you've ignored because you just don't want to obey? That's a very important question. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now, though, it's time to descend down the mountain. And as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the last of five silence mandates that Jesus gives in Matthew. And um, just as Peter didn't understand the, the pattern of suffering than glory in the Father's plan, it's far less likely that the crowds would at this point. So Jesus commands silence about this until he is risen. And then they are to remember and cherish and proclaim this event where they witnessed the glory of Christ. And Peter would do that. Peter would write it down. It's in your Bibles. Second Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter's writing about. He said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's writing about the transfiguration. Okay? He's doing exactly what Jesus says, wait until I'm risen, and then, <laughs> then you proclaim it. And so it's written down for us. But the disciples, this raised a question for them, and it's a, it's a Bible question. Um, really, it's, the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must, that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. 
Malachi the prophet had predicted that Elijah would return and restore all things. And Jesus here affirms, he he always affirms the truthfulness of, of the Old Testament predictions. Jesus affirming the truthfulness of our Bibles here. It is, he says, as Malachi had prophesied. Elijah will come and will restore all things. And there's a hint of some kind of futureness to this. But the main emphasis that Jesus is going to do is that Elijah has already come as a forerunner to the Messiah. Verses 12 and 13. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, Jesus says. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus says, John the Baptist fulfilled that prophetic role of the prophet Elijah as a forerunner of the Messiah. And the disciples, to their credit, understood the part about John the Baptist. They got that. The problem is, it doesn't say anything about them getting the main part. See, this, this is not, Jesus' teaching here is really not about J.B., It's about J.C. It's about Jesus. It's about him being the suffering son of man. That there is suffering that waits for him at the end of the road in Jerusalem. That's the cross where he bears our sins. He is not just the glorious son of God that they've seen on the mountaintop. On their way down the mountain. He reminds them that he's also the suffering son of man. And he would suffer for them on that road, at the end of that road, on that cross. And they would suffer as they would do what he just told them they must do. Take up their crosses and follow him. So, the voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Are you listening to him? Are you obeying him? Let's make that a matter of prayer as the worship team comes. Father, I think... I think I, I think I speak for all of us when I confess I don't get this. Um, I just get that Jesus is far more wonderful, far more exalted than I can grasp, than I can even imagine. And Father, I confess, and I confess for us collectively, we have made him very small and very like us. And so we want to bow before him now as the very Son of God, God in the flesh, come to rescue us, come to usher us into glory, to share in his glory in a way that's almost ungettable for us. And Lord, we have conferred with Jesus, we have consulted Jesus, but we often have fallen short of listening to Jesus. 
that which we have heard we have not obeyed. And many days we're just too busy to hear. So as we bow, Lord, there are various, various forms of confession that are on our hearts. And I pray just in this moment of silence you might hear them.